Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is uh, Rock and Rolls. And my guest today is my friend Robert Greenwald. Uh, we've never talked about spirituality before, but the other day he made a comment about the need to think internally instead of externally that made me realize he'd be a great person to talk to. And he has an extraordinary external list of accomplishments. Uh, been involved with 65 movies, TV movies, and miniseries. His TV films won 25 Emmy nominations, three for him personally, including 21 Hours at Munich, which was about the massacre of the Israeli athletes, and The Burning Bed, which was one of the most watched TV movies ever. I first met him when he was directing the feature film Sweetheart's Dance with Don Johnson and Susan Sarandon, and we became particularly close when I, he let me help him with the music on Steal This Movie, which was a biographical feature about Abby Hoffman a hero to both of us. In 2002, after 9-11, Robert turned his talents to documentaries. He, he started with Unprecedented about the Bush-Gore uh, election, pioneered uh, collaboration with MoveOn.org for uh, uh, online distribution, uh, famously made out Fox that has made about 10 other documentaries, including one about the Koch brothers, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and drone wars, and most recently, making a killing, guns, greed in the NRA. Um, so I wanted to start, though, with this idea of internal and external. T talk about the transition that you made from thinking that way and, and what it what it means to you. That's a good challenge to try to talk about that. Um, I think that for me it was a combination of factors that allowed me to think or feel more about what was internal and what was external. Part of it is just having the miles, aka aging, and some of it was life experiences. Uh, death of my father, which was now, I don't know, 15 years ago, but one of those events that no matter what your relationship with your parents, good, bad, or indifferent, it's a moment when your own mortality is staring you or screaming loud and clear at you. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to reach a point because of my work in film and television where money was no longer something that I needed to focus on to um, get a paycheck or pay my bills. So the externals, money, death of my father, getting older, came together in a way that in retrospect, certainly not at the time, um, allowed me, encouraged me, and at times frankly forced me to feel uh, and to go inside in terms of um, 
how I was experiencing the world and the people around me and what I wanted to do with my time and disconnecting it as much as humanly possible. And it's an ongoing challenge, <clears throat> disconnecting the accomplishments from money, fame, awards, you know, all of those things that have a lot, strong hold on many of us. Right. The, the title of this podcast, you know, why I call it Rock and Rolls is a twist on something Ram Dass says, which is he urges us to think of ourselves in terms of our souls, not our roles. And that's why, uh, and I did a play on words because my career is rock and roll business and the word roles, R-O-L-E. Um, your background, I know you're, you define yourself frequently in conversation as Jewish. Do, do you have a, a, a spiritual connection to Judaism or would you define it as more cultural or both? I would say cultural, um, uh, cultural primarily, but mm, emotional in the sense that I feel like I'm a Jew. I feel like I'm a New York Jew, which is a particular subset of Jews. Um, and I feel that it has provided me with some wonderful things, uh, including this ability to think beyond your own narrow self-interest, that that's baked into the culture and into my parents and the idea that you only need so many homes or so many cars and that there is a world that's critically important and it's beyond your own accomplishments or your own achievements or your own collecting of toys. Can you identify, like when you were a kid, where those ideas first formed for you about, uh, I guess, that service to others is what you're saying and caring about other people, the society at large was was a part of how you defined yourself? Is there some trigger that you can think of, whether it's spiritual or from your parents or what was happening in your life? Boy, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> It seems that it was always, my brother reminded me of this recently, actually, that when I was in the fifth grade or something, I think it was, I took him and we were picketing Woolworths because they weren't allowing um, black people to sit at the lunch counters. So it's, there it was not an aha moment. I think it was part of who I am, which I assume comes from my parents uh, and their influence in terms of this is what you do. These are the opportunities. Here are the some of the problems. Here are some of the battles. What I've thought about a lot recently, and I don't have an answer to it and have spent hours in therapy discussing, is been um, the sort of taking on the big guys, which all of the documentaries have done in some shape or form the powerful those in control uh and having enormous uh, satisfaction in being able to speak up for uh those who don't have that level of um money power or influence now your father was a, a psychotherapist is that right correct so is your um is your view of sort of yourself, is it informed by Freud? I know you talk a lot about therapy. Is, is it Freudian? Is it Jungian? Is it uh, 
how do you how do you look at at, at yourself uh, inwardly? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think the primary factor and sort of a surprise, even though my father was a therapist and my mother became a therapist later in life. My brother's a therapist. My sister-in-law is a therapist. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. Wow. So I've been surrounded by it, but it's really impacted me. I've had two, three different therapists over the years. I think each one was slightly different school uh, of therapy. The current therapist is Jungian in orientation. I am just in awe of the process that, you know, I remember visiting the Freud Museum in Vienna, which is where he started it all. And you walked into this little cubicle of a room and talk about outside the box. Here was a guy in this little cubicle who came up with this insane idea that by talking, you got better. You know, what an amazing breakthrough. And that idea which is the fundamental to all schools of therapy, right, has um, affected my life in really amazing ways over the years. It's never, it's not easy. It's not always pleasant. You know, looking at the parts of yourself, your background, your behavior, um, much easier to blame someone, right, and point a finger and say that goddamn asshole and fight with him or her. Um, but the process of talking, no matter what particular school of therapy, uh, and learning about yourself and learning about your behavior and trying to understand it, has, has and continues to be an extraordinary process for me. You're a, a few years older than me, but not much. So I know that the 1960s were a part of your young life. And you mentioned the civil rights, the early sides of the city civil rights movement. Moving to the later 60s, when the counterculture was in full blossom, did that affect you deeply? And if so, what aspects of it? I think it did. And I, I mean, the, part of the reason I did the Abby Hoffman movie in which you're, you know, getting the music out to the world was so such a wonderful, important help and contribution. I think part of that was my reliving the 60s in some way um, and acknowledging the power and impact of some of the people, some of the ideas. Tom Hayden, as you know, is a very close friend of mine. And the notion of basically challenging the system, I think it was probably Tom's Port Huron speech, name name it to figure out what the system is and looking at it as a systemic issue, not an individual issue. And actually it's one of the, probably the consistency in all the 10 documentaries where I always try to look at, and this is, I believe, an influence from the 60s, looking at the 60s, looking at the system. So for example, with the Walmart film, I kept saying, and I remember this so clearly as we were doing the research and looking for the stories to tell, this is not about bad boss or bad bosses. It's about the way a system of capitalism, profiteering, um, dollar at any cost, affects an entire environment. And that notion of uh, uh, taking things on systemically 
it, to me is one of the most important ideas, and it's the 60s combined with C. Wright Mills compared with Noam Chomsky, um, and it's in my DNA now. One of the things to me, I think that I, I, as you have probably figured out, you know, was really affected also by uh, kind of the psychedelic spiritual aspects of the 60s. And to me, there was a, the spirituality of, that I perceived was not a critique of organized religion. I didn't feel oppressed by any particular synagogue or some people I know that were Catholics had issues and the sexual repression, the judgmentalness. <clears throat> that informed some of the interests. To me, it was an alternative to what I think the real American religion is, which is materialism. And, you know, while we on the left try to make fun of the Ayn Rand people for the selfishness of their materialism, there's a lot of materialism in Marxism also, the idea that people are just defined by money and by self-interest. And at the same time, You've devoted this huge chunk of your life, and I hope it's okay to say publicly, you take absolutely no salary at all from Brave New Films, the company you created that makes all these documentaries. And there's a level of idealism that absolutely doesn't conform with uh, a materialistic philosophy. Uh, it's, it's, it's unique to my awareness in people in the public interest world and certainly among documentarians. Um, where does, do you have a sense of where that intensity comes from or did we just always have it? Because obviously you spent years in the Hollywood system, which, which was a very different headspace and you did pretty well in that. I mean, there's always somebody doing better, but you did well, better than 99% of the people that entered those, those waters and again made this significant shift in focus. Um, do you have any notion inside yourself of where that came from or how other people can catch it from you? Well, it's interesting because it was a, it was not an easy transition or struggle. And it, it speaks to what you were saying before of it's exactly the internal versus the external in that I was working in Hollywood. I was making large sums of money, far more than I ever thought would be possible. And I was... You know, there were people around me who were also making money because of that, lawyers and agents and managers and, you know, employees. And when I began to make this transition to documentary filmmaking, I was very, my brother gave me a book called Wealth Addiction. I don't remember who wrote about it. Just out of curiosity, older or younger brother? Younger. Four years younger. Um... And it was the book helped me understand some of what I was beginning to experience, which is I had more money than I thought I would have. If I was careful, I didn't need to have a paying job, but I had to break the notion that more money was going to make you feel more and more better because it doesn't. Right. It's money. It, you know, you talk about materialism. It's it can buy you some things. Some of them can make life a whole lot better than not having them. But at a certain point, <clears throat> it be does become like a drug where you're always thinking about making more. You know, I think about some of these actors and writers, directors, they have zillions of dollars. And yet, you know, they're miserable because the next job didn't pay them 20 million and only pay them 19 million. And, you know, and they're not making choices based on the inner experience of what do I what gives me pleasure? 
What do I like? Now, not everyone has to decide pleasure is fighting for social justice. But the fact that so many people are consumed with the material pursuit, with the wealth addiction, with the idea that someplace outside there's a brass ring or there's a prize or there's an Oscar that's going to change everything and make them feel great. Going to change the way you feel inside, right, for more than five minutes. Exactly. Because exactly. for five minutes it feels pretty good, by the oh, way. Oh, man. Oh, it feels great. You know, you're seven feet tall and you can conquer the world. It's fantastic. But it's five minutes and then you come down and then you still have the same challenges and issues. And so this process where I was really coming to terms with not measuring myself by money um, and making a decision, you know, I can do other things. And I think I'm not sure. But I think these other things are going to give me a lot more pleasure than chasing another movie or, you know, another deal or, you know, fighting with some other studio executive. And so it was not instant, but it happened over probably a year or two years. And as it went on, I felt, yeah, this, I'm really enjoying this. I want to do more of this. And so it was gradual moving away from the external in retrospect, towards the internal. And for me, the internal very much related to this amazing opportunity to tell stories, which I love doing, to make films, which I love doing, and to do it around issues that are going to affect people's lives. How unbelievable is that? Now, I, certainly some of your subjects, many of your subjects involve confronting Tremendous concentrated wealth, whether it's the arms manufacturers, the gun that, that often influence foreign policy, the gun manufacturers who directly profit from, uh, you know, guns, uh, the Walton family that owns Walmart. And, you, you know, my own philosophy is that there's something, whether you use the word God or not, I, I like the word, but I totally honor and respect my friends who don't like the word, but that there's something inside everybody that's connected. And, 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 you know, have you drawn any conclusions about what it is inside some of these extremely wealthy, powerful people that compels them to um, perpetuate uh, suffering and darkness when obviously they have hundreds of times more money than any movie star, forgetting about more money than, than they need. Uh, literally more money than any human being could possibly spend if they did the most expensive things you can do every day of your life. Um, what Have you come to any conclusions about what, what the inner process is of, of some of the people that you've taken on as adversaries? Going to Jung for this particular um, question, he talks a lot about the wound or the shadow. Mm. And the less you deal with your shadow, the bigger it becomes and the more it weighs you down. So in Jungian terms, you look at your own shadow, which is the dark side, which is the part of the serious self that you don't want to see or don't want to acknowledge or don't want to challenge or the wound, the part of you that's hurting. Everyone has it, doesn't mean your parents were abusive, but everyone has some kind of wound. 
And my sense with some of these people, you know, some of them are psychopaths and that's a different category, but some of them I really believe are trying to either obliterate the shadow or heal the wound by more, more and more. And of course it doesn't do it. You know, you see executives in their 70s, 80s, 90s still racing to make the toughest deal and screw somebody more or buy another company. You know, you think of these people who are addicted to deals. I think it's an effort to do those two things. And for some to get away from a depression that can come with the unhealed wound or the shadow that's gotten bigger and bigger. Someone that you and I are both friends with is Ramona Ripston, who used to, for years, 35 years, ran the ACLU of Southern California and did extraordinary work uh, in uh, all sorts of issues, including uh, how welfare recipients were treated, funding of schools, as well as discrimination against all sorts of groups. And she's talked a lot about the fact that many progressives, as they get older, develop a kind of deep sadness because they just haven't changed the world the way they thought they were going to. And I ran into another mutual friend uh, recently who, who said 40 years ago, you know, she thought it would only take a few years to make everything better and, and, and the, the slowness of the process. And uh, obviously, there's the philosophy of just heal your part of the world, the kun olam, Jewish tradition of, you know, heal your part of the world and that it's not given to, to you to, to complete the task, but to do your part. But these are slogans. Uh, how do you think about this issue? Because obviously there's a good chance you and I are going to pass from this incarnation without all of the problems that we care about having been solved in the United States. Uh, and yet, and yet every moment, to make every moment matter, knowing that, how, how, how do you cope with that seeming contradiction? Well, I certainly, like everybody, have my bad days or periods of time when the struggle seems hopeless or it's hard to believe you're making a difference, you know, with what you're doing. Um, and sometimes it can be as simple as I was with my wife the other day at a at a clinic that we help support and one of the social workers. Sorry about that. Go ahead. We were at a clinic and one of the social workers walked in and she started talking about how she'd seen the Walmart film, whatever, eight years ago and how it had impacted her. And it, you know, totally affected my day. Now, was it affecting my day because, Oh yeah. I am, in fact, helping change awareness about Walmart. Was it affecting my day because the ego was stroked? Was it affecting my day because I felt the work was worth the time? You know, probably a combination of factors. But when I have the blackest of days, when it feels like what I'm doing is not meaningful or not making change, um, it's... It's tough. You know, it's it's tough. On the other hand, it's exactly what you say. You know, I try, particularly with this recent gun film and the drones film, where the particular people where I was so connected to because of the process of making the film, the thought that, you know, despite my uh, 
grand thoughts. I may not fix the world before I'm gone, but maybe I can do a piece around some people in Pakistan who won't be killed by drones or a piece that will help somebody you know, uh, around uh, gun issues. Well, one of the remarkable things about those two films in particular is that you had personal encounters with people who'd endured the greatest of tragedies, often losing family members, sometimes children, and uh, and and yet they somehow have to go on, which is which is a, a much deeper uh, issue than just gee, I thought you know, we were going to have more democracy by now or something like that. How have they affected you? Have you uh, been inspired or learned from them something that the rest of us should know? Because you've, you've really been hands-on looking into the eyes of people that have just experienced the most horrific things. Um, well, as, you know, as we talked about over breakfast two weeks ago, the on the Guns film, my first response over the two years was uh, you know emotionally uh, devastating now my devastation is doesn't hold a candle to the people but dealing was I was dealing very very close up with death every day and it was death that is 100% unnecessary and it's people's lives who have been impacted and changed and their families forever. Yeah, for the people who haven't seen the film, just go into a little more detail about the nature of, of, of these incidents and deaths that you're describing. So the film is Making a Killing. It's available online. You can go, you go to Brave New Films. And the fundamental is five personal stories of people who've been affected by gun violence. A mother who's child goes to play with some friends and is killed in an accidental shooting a woman who's now former husband breaks in and tries to shoot her in front of her three-year-old son a 26 year old man who is six weeks away from getting married no history of mental problems of any kind goes out because he's having a very very dark period no waiting periods goes out and buys a gun and shoots himself uh, the city of Chicago, the South Side, where there's a horrible um, incidence of gun violence due to the fact that guns are imported into Chicago all the time. So I spent two years traveling, interviewing, meeting, talking to these people. And then in terms of the film, making the connection between the personal pain and the larger systemic issue, which is the greed and profit of the gun companies in the NRA. You take greed and profit out of it and the problem gets solved in a minute, having zero to do with the Second Amendment. That would, it would be fixed right away. And in meeting and talking with these people, it was very, um, it caught me by surprise how difficult the two years were and how much crying and grieving and, um, uh, feeling I was having uh, for the people and for death. Um, the inspiration, I think, was really what you say, is that they found a way, and many didn't, but the people I spoke to, every single one of them in this film and the drones film, where I was working through a translator when I went to Pakistan, every single one of them said they were doing it for one reason, which was to try to help others not have to go through it. I mean, as a parent, I can't even think about 
something happening to my kids, let alone then being able to speak about it and get up publicly and say, you know, if there was a law passed, my son would be alive today. So that inspiration of people taking the tragedy and never, never, never fixing it, never healing it, never getting over it, but taking the pain, taking the tragedy and trying to do something about it uh, so that others won't have to go through it. Let's just talk about, um, to just switch tones for a minute, to go back to, I'd like to go a little deeper into talking about Abby Hoffman. I mean, we didn't talk about him at all. We just mentioned him. And it was an interesting choice because Abby uh, was not a pure political person and he wasn't a pure counterculture person. He was a hybrid. He certainly took lots of LSD. He loved music. He, 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 uh, his self-expression included a great deal of humor uh, and and uh, was influenced a lot by the diggers and other uh, 60s energies. And at the same time, he was very serious about certain issues, particularly the war in Vietnam. Um, how, how do you think, uh, what, what attracted you to him and what makes him unique? And there really isn't anybody like him today that I can think of. Can you? No. Well, you know, the equivalent, it's strange, would be some of the people who have the shows, you know, John Oliver or Samantha Bee or John Stewart. Right. They're activists, but they use culture in the way that you wrote the wonderful book about and that we've talked about culture as an element in reaching people. Um, but Abby, you know, was unique in that he was out there doing it. And it, it's exactly what you say. And that was the attraction. And that's partly what we do with the films also, right? They're not traditional political um, propaganda or even uh, PSAs, you know? Um, they are films that tell stories that try to engage people, i.e. using the culture. Abby told stories with humor and he used music and sit-ins and be-ins and, you know, those things. And um, I think he had the significant effect on me conscious more unconscious probably in terms of using cultural ways to communicate to impact people now we're lucky today because we have a distribution system that allows us to reach hundreds of thousands and millions of people that we never used to have called the internet um, and social media and if he was around today you know i'm sure he'd be have a zillion followers on Twitter because he'd be funny and engaging and doing, you know, have his own YouTube channel. And yet he was prone to deep depression, right? And ultimately, whether he killed himself intentionally or not, his behavior killed himself. He had suicidal tendencies. Um, what, what did you make of that? I know you didn't know him, but you obviously researched him extensively. Can you juxtapose that? that joy and humor with with the dark side well i actually did know him a little bit because he played he he paid me some visits when he was underground he mm. came he remember calling me with a strange name because he always needed money you know so right. if, you, if you had 20 bucks you were a hero uh and i didn't have a lot at the time and anita hoffman lived right next door to me when i was living in venice then um you know, depression is such a son of a bitch. I mean, some amazing Bruce Springsteen, you know, has depression and is they've talked about it. Yeah. I guess he's talked about it. He's written songs about it. So the ability to to feel and experience joy, success, accomplishment, pleasure 
is not antithetical to having depression. There are lots of theories about depression, you know, lots of ideas. One of the fundamental is that you get out of, you get disconnected to yourself. You get out of touch with yourself. And then the psyche is saying, hey, I'm here, pay attention, mm. and forces you in some way, you know, talking again from a, either a spiritual or internal a point of view to come back in touch with the internal. For me, I get most depressed when I'm defining myself by what what I think you would call externals. If I if I define myself by uh, uh, success or failure in business, success or failure at writing something, it doesn't have to be something that that is uh, that, that defining myself in, in terms of uh, just physically or or mentally instead of trying to remember the soul part of it. And, you know, one of the, you know, the Buddhists will just say observing these things gives you a place from which to, to detach. Uh, but, you know, when I'm, when I'm depressed, I don't think I'm a soul. I think I'm just a miserable failure. You know, I define myself in a narrower uh, way. I always wondered with him whether the change in the external society made that he was so, addicted to being relevant, you know, and when the Vietnam wasn't going on anymore and he wasn't a celebrity anymore, whether that created some sense of loss because, because that it's not only money that can be addictive. It's also, as we know, working with performers, attention, uh, external attention that, 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 that can be, that can be addictive. Um, just, just to jump around, I seem to recall, and if I got this wrong, forgive me that you, or at least thinking of develop, uh, developing a project with uh, Coretta King and Betty Shabazz. Do I remember that right? Is that yes? And and uh, Malcolm? No. And uh, who's the third? so the widows of of Martin Luther King, Malcolm and Malcolm X, and Medgar Evers' widow. So the right. Three. So they were all religious people. I mean, Christian, Muslim. Um, what 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 did you that, that must have been a, a a rich experience getting getting to know them can can you share something about that i mean i'm a, as anyone who listens to me knows i'm martin luther king is one of my gurus in mm. terms of uh inspiring me uh but but uh, malcolm x's trajectory is also quite extraordinary particularly the path he took in the latter years of his of his life um what what was that like and and and, and what insights do you have from that experience well, it was it was quite a amazing, wonderful experience. I wish I was doing documentaries back then. Yeah, <clears throat> when, exactly. Oh my, it would have been such a great documentary that I, uh, um, Mrs. King was alive at the point that uh, Malcolm X's wife had died, and Medgar Evers, uh, whose uh, wife is still alive. Um, so it would have been great to interview at least two out of the three. It was, I got to go to meet Mrs. King at the home where they lived, where they were shots through the window. You know, she mm. showed me where that had been to go to church, where one of the churches that he'd been heavily involved in. And the sense of power, I guess, from both Mrs. Evers and Mrs. King was truly extraordinary. I. Just reminded me, I had some great audio tapes I recorded. I should look for them, see if they're in a file someplace. Um, but I talk about inspirational, you know, and, and ability to go on and to 
take a tragedy and to make something of your life in spite of or because of or because it's put in front of you. You know, one of the terrible things with the gun film and the drones film is that I'm meeting and interviewing people who do not who have a capacity to survive but don't really have a capacity to go on in any meaningful way. And you know that they're just going to be essentially hanging on because life and these things have dealt them this horrible, horrible blows that they are not able to really handle the way others are. Some extraordinary, like Mrs. King and Mrs. Evers. Some you've never heard of, like this you know, father in in uh, Pakistan whose mother was killed by a drone and some of the gun survivors. What do you make of the um, fear that Americans have about Islam? That it's definitely something that's pervasive. And I'm even embarrassed to say sometimes I'm in a taxi driver and I'll hear the driver on the phone speaking in Arabic and I get a wave of of anxiety, and it's completely uh, unfair given the statistics, the tiny percentage of Muslims that are violent, and there's also a small percentage of Jews and Christians and atheists that are very violent, but because of 9-11 and the um, uh, history with Iran and the general um, uh, benefits that the um, military-industrial complex, for want of a better word, gets out of this conflict, it's permeated so much of the of, of the society, you've spent time with Muslim victims of, of of drones, and and I know you've you've thought about this a lot. What what do you? How do we communicate to our friends and neighbors and who 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 are scared? Uh, you can't be mad at people for being scared. How do you channel their fear into something that's not destructive? Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly the question, you know, and I remember so clearly I was in Pakistan and interviewing one of the early drone survivors. He was like a 17 or 18 year old boy. We did the interview and I made a pretty good connection with him through the translator. And after the interview was over and the camera was turned off, he talked to me, turned to me and he said through the translator, why do you Americans hate Muslims? And it wasn't a question, do you? It was just, what's the reason for the hatred? In that world, in that society, it was it was an accepted um, it, it was an accepted statement. But the fear question is the fundamental one: whether it's Muslims or whether it's people who think they have to keep five guns in their home that they're going to be safer, or whether it's people who think the military needs more weapons, right, and more bases. And dealing with fear is a really, really tough, tough problem. And what I'm trying to do with the guns film, I'll talk about that because it's even more, most recent, you know, and it relates to the Muslim thing, which is people are now more scared because of gun violence than they've ever been because of the shootings in churches and schools and movie theaters. Can we make a film that touches the fear but touches it responsibly and touches that fear and then takes it so that people can use the fear and do something to make themselves safer 
really safer, which is not buying five guns, right? So similarly, I would say with the fear of Muslims or the fear, fear of scary black guys walking down the street and you have to cross three blocks over. If you look at the statistics, there's a much, 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 much greater chance you're going to get hit by lightning. But we don't run inside when it rains. That's where I think, you know, again, it goes back to our conversations in your book about the influence of culture. Culture helps the Muslim fear. It helps the black guy fear. It helps getting the gun, thinking that's going to be a solution. And there's no quick or easy thing. But I don't think that just the rational brain can solve the emotional problem of fear. It requires something in the creative process in a way to emotionally speak to emotion. And I have two more things I'd like to explore. Um, and these podcasts, uh, I only do them every three weeks. And so this probably won't be on for a month or so uh, up online. But this this uh, day that we're doing it is May 5th. And I noticed that your company, Brave New Films, took note on Facebook that it is the 91st anniversary of the arrest of John Scopes, the famous Scopes trial, the school teacher who was arrested for teaching evolution in uh, in Tennessee. And uh, some, what what made you note that? And what is your basic take on religion? Uh, the pros and the cons. We were also speaking at a time when a few days ago, Daniel Berrigan passed away, the great pacifist, anti-war activist, who was also a Christian. So we see the yin and the yang in all of these belief systems. Uh, what, what are you, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts about, uh, I, when I spoke to our mutual friend Tom Hayden recently, he was, uh, uh on the one hand telling me how he had first gone to church, uh, presided over by the racist, uh, anti-Semitic Father Coughlin. And on the other hand, as an adult, one of his great heroes is the current Pope, Pope Francis. So how do you look at religions in terms of pluses or minus on the moral playing field that you're obsessed with? Um, well, I know I'm not, I don't, I don't define myself as a religious person. Um, I don't go to a temple or a church. But I have seen in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, with the drone survivors, virtually uh, with the gun survivors, virtually every single or almost every single person talked about how important therapy and religion were, were to them. So I see and I experience and I feel the value that individual connection to a greater being or a process or a world has for people. I think for the most part, the institutionalization of religion um, has had some very negative effects on society. Yes, on like tribalism, it separates people yes. from each other and, and, as often as not. Right, and justifies the most horrible, horrible killing and shooting and wars and stuff. You know, you combine it with nationalism and sometimes one bleeds right into the other. And you've got this toxic mixture that has people going to kill other people for no personal reason. I've been really thinking about this desire to have a tribe. I mean, I live in Manhattan. I moved from Greenwich Village to the Upper West Side recently. And people say, oh, how do you like the Upper West Side? Or, oh, do you miss the village? Is, is if... <laughs> 
as if these have tremendous moral and 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 con or aesthetic uh, consequences. And and on the one hand, it's fun to be part of a group, and it's fun to have uh, comrades. And on the other hand, the problem with it is that that you're then taking a circle that excludes other people rather than trying to create a big circle that in includes everybody and how to maintain a, a real identity that's not passive and, and not exclude people is 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 something I've been thinking about a lot. And one of the areas I've been thinking about it in is having to do with this presidential election where um, most of my friends and I uh, are, have been supporting uh, Bernie Sanders for president. Uh, I think it's extremely likely, you may disagree with me, but I just think my analytical mind tells me that it's 99% likely that uh, he's not going to get the presidential nomination. I agree. There's a tremendous amount of pent-up bitterness that these campaigns engender. And, of course, the political left is notorious for the so-called circular firing squad anyway, a phrase which I believe Che Guevara coined. And and, um, how do we act as ethical, responsible people, uh, working with people to accomplish a common goal, even though we don't agree with them about certain things. I, myself, am to the left of Obama, Clinton, and Jimmy Carter, the last several Democratic presidents. And at the same time, I, I have no problem recognizing that they were better from my point of view than the people they ran against. Uh, but, boy, it's a, it's a big... It's a big issue coming up the next few months for a lot of people who've been brokenhearted by some of the disappointments with Democrats. And yet the alternative to me seems far worse. We have work to do. What's your perspective on this conversation? Well, um, you know, but you have a tribe by excluding others. If you include everyone, it's no longer a tribe, unfortunately, yeah. by its nature. Um but I think on the political front, I mean, first of all, on specifically, I'm sure 99 and a half percent of the Bernie people will wind up supporting Hillary in some shape or form because the alternative with Trump is beyond horrific. But I think more importantly, longer term, it goes to this issue of the change comes in multiple ways. There's electoral change and there's social movement change. Yes. If you believe in social movement change, you don't have to go out and kneecap Hillary Clinton, but then you can work in, you know, for labor, for women, for peace movement, for social justice, for the 15, you know, there's so many opportunities to find a place. And yes, politicians are by their nature, different beasts who are, you know, and I know some of them and like them, but their job is trying to get things through. And that does require a kind of compromise. I lean more towards social movement for change than picking the perfect candidate. I don't think Dr. King sat around waiting to decide who is the right person to support electorally. He went out and he created the movement and the change. And we all can and should be doing that. I can't think of a better way to end. Thank you so much, Robert, for doing this. And thanks for these many years of friendship. Same here, dude. Thank you. Bye. Bye.